go as well. Uh, there are other options here this morning as far as teaching goes. Uh, you'll just need to get checked in with a name tag and maybe a background check if you're not four and five years old. Uh, but uh, okay, so I think they, they're, they're out. Does that mean the rest of you guys are staying? All right, all right. Don't say I didn't give you a chance. All right, that was your chance. Uh, So open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. And while you're turning there, I want to share a little bit about my uh, childhood. Uh, Growing up, my house in the neighborhood was the house to be at, all right? It was the place that all the kids in the neighborhood wanted to be at. They wanted to hang out at our house. We had a few things going for us, all right? Not only was the Walker family, in my opinion, a fun family to hang out with and to be around, but we also lived at the end of a cul-de-sac, okay? And so that provided kind of a safe, low-traffic area to play games and uh, to play basketball and roller hockey. We had a basketball hoop out there. Uh, But not only that, our garage was just packed full of awesome things. We had a ping pong table. Uh, We had a foosball table. We had like the arcade basketball, like side by side shooting game. Okay. Uh, We then had uh, couches in our garage. All right. Not couches in the, not couches out in the front yard. That's a little bit different of a feel, but in the, in the garage, right. We had couches in the garage that people could come and hang out in. And then not only that, but we had a freezer that was packed full of those uh, flavored ice, like freezer pops. Okay. And uh, it was out in California, so that is like open year-round, right? The Walker House for hanging out was open year-round. And uh, needless to say, my parents were obviously trying to be the house on the block that everyone wanted to hang out at. And uh, they might have gone above and beyond, but I think they succeeded because our place was the place that kids wanted to be at. They wanted to feel a part of the, the Walker family or at least that neighborhood family that congregated at our house. Now, some of the friends that I would bring to the house and to the neighborhood family, so to speak, um, I I didn't worry about it all. I knew that my parents would easily approve of them. You know, these were kind of the kids that were a little bit more kind of clean cut, well behaved, uh, you know, respectful, things like that. I knew there wouldn't be any problem, you know, having them a part of the family. Uh, but then there were other friends uh, that, that we would meet and kind of bring into the neighborhood family that we'd maybe be a little worried about. We might be a little embarrassed or, uh, uh, you know, they might be coming from a little bit rougher of a background. They might have uh, a little bit more of a robust vocabulary than what I had learned in VBS and Sunday school. And so uh, it was just, you know, there were some friends that I was maybe embarrassed or even ashamed of to kind of bring in to this family. Now, as soon as my family and the neighborhood family got to know someone and got to trust them, then, of course, they were always welcomed in with open arms. But there's always that season in between being invited into a family and being accepted in the family. Uh, There's that in-between season that is always very exhausting, right? It it just drains you of energy when you're in that season, okay? So think about it if uh, if you are married. Think about some of those first gatherings that you would go to your spouse's family gatherings, okay? Uh, th- those could sometimes be exhausting or draining, right? Uh, not, not for me, uh, not for me at all, but I've heard other friends say this about their spouse's families, that, that, uh, uh, that at, in that in-between season, it's, it's exhausting. Not that it's bad, it's just exhausting. And why is that? Why is that? Well, it's because you're still in a season where you are working for the acceptance and the approval of the family. 
Or, or think about maybe uh, a, when you're in a season of, of meeting new friends or going to a new church or starting a new job. Like, that is emotionally exhausting, right? Because you're in this season where you feel like you have to be on your A game. You feel like you have to put your best foot forward. And why do you often feel that way? Many of you deep down feel that way because you believe that if someone really knew the real you, that they would not accept or approve of you. A lot of us, we have this deep sense of shame about who we are. And sadly, even as Christians, we will try with all of our might to keep what we're ashamed of hidden so that no one will find out about it, so that we will be able to find the acceptance and approval that our heart is desperately longing for. Now, compare those hangouts of where you're trying to impress and be accepted. Compare that to going like to your parents' house if you have a good relationship with them or going to a really close friend's house. Like, there's a night and day difference just with how you feel, right? I mean, when I go to my parents' house, I mean, you know, I, I just, I roll in, you know, unshaven, unshowered, just grab a drink, plop on the couch. I don't care what they think of me. We're already way too far in this for them to get rid of me, right? It's like we're already, I'm already in, right? I'm a part of the Walker family. I can be my, my true self. They can know me. I don't have to put my best foot forward. We can get down to who I truly am. And let me tell you, there is, a, there is a beauty in being able to live in light of that unconditional love and acceptance of a family. When you live in that unconditional love and acceptance of a family, that is life-giving, that is energy-producing, that is joy-filling. And church, that is the life that God has called us to so that our shame might be healed. Church, we have been invited into a glorious family that is way more glorious than the Walker family. And yet most of us are spiritually exhausted from still struggling for the acceptance and approval that we have already received in Christ. And we're tired and we're weary. And so this morning, I want to invite all the weary and heavy laden this morning to come and see this family that Jesus has brought you unashamedly into. Because it's exhausting to hide our shame. It's exhausting to hide our shame from God and from one another and even from ourselves. But God's word is going to show us today that it does not have to be this way. And so we are in Hebrews 2, starting in verse 10. And we're going to see how through the suffering and death of Jesus, we have been brought unashamedly into the family of God. And before we jump in, let me pray for us. Father God, this is your word, and these are your people. And we ask that you would make much of yourself this morning. We ask, Lord, that this would be a worshipful uh, experience where we are glorifying you as we are proclaiming your word and hearing your word. We ask that this would transform us, God. Yes, instruct our minds, but transform our hearts through this time. Lord, we know that this word, it is living and active, and I ask that you would do a great work on our hearts this morning. We ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Hebrews 2, verse 10. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist 
in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now to the ancient world and still to our world today, the truth that we serve a God who suffered and died is pretty is still pretty kind of an unbelievable, wild, scandalous concept. I mean, the Greeks in this day, when this was written, the Greeks thought that it was very foolish to think of a God who would humble himself, who, a, a God who would allow himself to suffer and die. Like in the ancient world, in the cultures of honor, that was a shameful thing for a God to do something like that. The Greeks thought that the gospel was foolishness. This is foolish. The Jews were enraged by it. Right? It was a stumbling block to them that Yahweh the Lord would become a man. That would be a shameful and unthinkable thing for Yahweh to do something like that. But Paul told the Corinthians that to us who are called, what we see in the humbling and the suffering and the shaming of Christ, what we see is the power and the wisdom of God. And so our author echoes here in Hebrews, 10, uh, Hebrews 2 verse 10, he says, It was fitting that for whom and by whom all things exist, that he should come and suffer and allow himself to be shamed so that many sons and daughters would be unashamedly brought to glory. Now notice that there in verse 10. Notice this, how glorious and how gracious it is that our God says that we are not called to come to glory. But no, instead, God comes and he brings us to glory. That's a beautiful thing. Our God comes and he brings us to glory. And let me clarify this word son here, or this sons to glory, and we're going to talk about sonship today. Uh, When I'm using those terms and when the Bible is using this term here, it certainly is referring to men and women, to boys and girls, males and females, okay? In Christ, all of us, we've been given the gift and the privilege of sonship and all of that that entails. Now let's define some of these terms in verse 10 before we keep moving on so that we have a proper understanding. We first must clarify this term, uh, made perfect through suffering. Because at first read, it can seem to us that that is saying that Jesus was not already perfect. Uh, But we know from the rest of Scripture and even from earlier in Hebrews that Jesus is the eternal second person of the Trinity. His character and his person have always been perfectly pure. But you see, oftentimes in the Bible and in other Jewish literature, this idea of perfection or being perfect, it's speaking of completing a course. It's speaking of making it to the end of God's plan. Or this idea of perfect, it also means to be, to be consecrated, to be dedicated, to be set apart to a particular office. And so when we read a reference to Jesus being made perfect through suffering, it is in no way speaking to his person or his character, but to the particular office that he was fulfilling. And it was through the incarnation. It was through his temptations. It was through his suffering and his shaming and his death that he endured that perfectly qualified him, that set him apart, that dedicated him to this office to be our perfect savior to be our merciful and a faithful high priest. And Luke 24, verse 26 says, Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? 
He had to suffer to complete the course of God's plan and to be set apart now as humanity's savior and humanity's ultimate prophet, priest, and king. He was made perfect through suffering. Now let's also clarify the term founder of our salvation. Okay? And here's where I think that the the KJV actually does a bit more of an accurate uh, translation to this word. And so I'll have the KJV up on the screen in Hebrews 2, verse 10. It doesn't say founder of their salvation, but it says captain of their salvation. All right? Now, don't necessarily think of captain of a ship, but more like captain in the military. Okay? Because this word... For founder or captain, it's trying to explain to us how Jesus is like the pioneer of our salvation. And some other English translations use that term pioneer, how he is the trailblazer, how he is the front runner, how he is work, his work cleared the path and the way for us to follow. And so founder is an okay translation, but it's missing kind of this forward motion and this direction that Jesus has when we understand him to be the captain of our salvation. You have to understand when this was written in the Roman world, the captain of a military regiment was not one that just hung in the back and shouted orders up to the front lines. No, the captain of a military regiment, he took charge. He led the troops. He, he was the front runner. And as he charged the enemy lines, that encouraged and emboldened his comrades to follow. And so, yes, Christ is in command of his people, but not as one that's just kind of shouting orders from the background, but in, as one who's leading the way, who's blazing the trail, who's run out ahead of us and set us an example to follow. Christ is the captain of our salvation. And not only is he coming after the enemy, but he's coming after the hearts of his people. And he's bringing sons and daughters to glory. And bringing sons and daughters to glory, that includes the hearts of his sons and daughters. And if he's bringing sons and daughters to glory and he's bringing their hearts into glory, that means that he's bringing every hidden compartment of our hearts. Even the parts that you are ashamed of or embarrassed about, he's coming after them to bring you and all the hidden parts of your life into the glorious family. Jesus completed the plan that the Father had ordained. He made war. He gave the death blow to our enemy through his suffering and death. He took the shame that we deserved, and he allowed himself to be cast out by the Father so that we could be welcomed in and experience the acceptance and approval that our hearts are desperately longing for. I read a story uh, about a couple who, a couple of years ago, they were adopting a girl uh, from South America. And the husband traveled to this South American country to uh, complete the adoption. They'd never met the girl, but he arrives in this country. And, and unfortunately, it was a country that just had a lot of corruption in the government as well as in the, the adoption agency. And as me, immediately once he got there, uh, he, he saw all the corruption that was happening. Everyone was just trying to come at him to get as much money out of, them, out of him as they could. So they kept upping the price of adoption on him. 
They even had people, some shady individuals, like make death threats to him if he didn't pay this certain amount. They even threatened the life of the daughter. And there were times in this adoption process that he just had thoughts of, hey, like maybe I just need to drop this whole thing and just try to get out of here with my life. But he instead uh, decided to stay, to persevere, to negotiate. He, gave all, he ended up giving all the money that he had, and he was willing to even give up his life in order to adopt this girl. And this girl now has graduated high school, and she gave a moving speech at her graduation, thanking her parents for all that they had done in coming to get her and bringing her into their family so that she might experience all the blessings of being a part of this new family. Church, this is what God has done for you in Christ. The captain of your salvation is bringing you into glory, and he has now adopted you into his family. He's adopted you into his family. And if you're like me, this, this maybe seems a little bit too good to be true. Uh, that God is now, right, our Father, and, and Jesus is our brother. Like, have we really been accepted into this glorious family? Because I don't know about you, but I would be ashamed to show up with me to God's family gathering. Can this really be true? Look back at verse 11, Hebrews 2, verse 11. It says, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. A bit difficult to interpret or translate that, but essentially uh, uh, Jesus became one of us. We share in this humanity and this union with him. And he goes on to say then in verse 11, that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Church, listen. For those of you in Christ, for those of you who are trusting in Christ for your life and salvation, Jesus is not ashamed of you. Jesus is not ashamed of you. And I realize that might come as a truth that is difficult to process and maybe even a little, little bit hard to believe because you might be thinking, like, what do you mean Jesus isn't ashamed of me? I'm ashamed of me at times, right? I mean, we're, we're, we live in a fallen world and there's lots of things that we can be ashamed of. For example, sometimes it's, it's sin that we're ashamed of, right? Sin that maybe we've committed in the past that's been dealt with and we've confessed it and we've moved on and we've received forgiveness, but we still just feel this kind of lingering deep shame about our past sin. Sometimes it's not even sin that we've, we've done that causes us shame, but it's sin that's been done to us, right? So if someone has abused you, if you've experienced a traumatic event in your life, like that can leave you with this kind of sense, this deep sense of just dirtiness and shamefulness about it. Sometimes shame is caused not even by sin, but just by our, our weaknesses. Like we, we live in a, in a world where we have limitations, but some of you feel shame about this, right? Like you feel shame because you're not as faithful as a Christian as you want to be. Or you feel shame that you're not as loving of a spouse or as a parent as you want to be. Or you feel shame about like you don't pray as much as you should. 
If you, like, if you want to see someone start dealing with shame, like, just ask them about their prayer life. And I mean, you know, immediately everyone just hangs their head. Well, you know, I'm not, I'm not praying as much as I should. I know God's ashamed of me, right? Or, or maybe we experience shame just about our, our, our physical, like how we look and how we appear and what we weigh. And all those can produce in us this, like this deep sense of shame that we're not good enough, that we are, have not been approved or accepted. And listen, church, if those thoughts are left to themselves about our weaknesses, if, if those thoughts are left to themselves and not sanctified by Christ in community with believers, what will happen is they will plant a deep root of shame in your heart. Now, let me help us understand what shame is and differentiate it from guilt. And, and the pastor, Sam Storms, I think, gives a helpful definition of shame, which we'll have up on the screen. He says, shame is the painful emotion that is caused by a consciousness of guilt, failure, impropriety that often results in the paralyzing conviction belief that one is worthless, of no value to others or to God, unacceptable, and altogether deserving of disdain and rejection. Now let's, let's leave that up there for a little bit. Like, like, is this how some of you feel? Now, shame is, is sneaky, and we're good at hiding it. Uh, we, we hide it in lots of different ways. Uh, shame is certainly easy to hide on social media, right? We don't put that sort of stuff out there. We kind of edit and make it appear that that's not there. We hide it on social media. But we're also good at hiding it in our city groups. We're good at hiding it in our, in our church family. We kind of learn the right things to say, what things are acceptable to confess uh, with the church family and what things are not acceptable to confess in the church family. And we kind of know these things. We know how to play the game. But we're even good at hiding it from ourselves. And what do I mean by this? I mean, that might seem weird, me saying that we can hide this from ourselves. But you see, we keep ourselves so busy that our hearts only have time to react to life and never to reflect as to what's actually happening in them. Right? So if we keep ourselves busy enough, then we can just live life reacting, 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 and we don't actually stop to ever reflect and deal with the deeper heart issues of life. This is why some of you, like sitting in a room by yourself for 10 minutes uninterrupted, like that is a terrifying thing to you. That is a terrifying thought to you because if you had 10 minutes where nothing was coming in from the outside, you might actually start thinking about some deep heart things that are going on that need to be dealt with. And, and, and look, look around. I mean, like no one wants to sit and actually deal with the deep heart issues. We used to have times like sitting in waiting rooms or waiting in lines or things like that. But now everyone, right, we're just going to the phone, right? Like I don't want to have the chance at all to deal with some of the ugliness going on in here. I just want to just keep kind of consuming more and more and just reacting to life and never reflecting as to what's going on in the deep parts of my heart. We're good at hiding it from ourselves. But then every now and then, shame gets out. Shame gets out. We fail at hiding it somehow. It gets out. Maybe you notice this when you're uh, talking with someone and you're asking them questions. You can tell when you hit a sensitive issue. 
Much when you're doing a physical exam, like you can, and you're pressing around, feeling for a tender spot, you can tell when you hit the part that's broken. And when shame gets out, oftentimes what we do is we will then try to defend it. Uh, we'll do this by maybe blaming others for it. We'll, we'll defend it by com- maybe comparing it to others and that, well, hey, this is, you know, other people are dealing with way worse stuff than this. Or if we don't defend it, then maybe just sometimes we'll numb it. We'll numb it. Okay, and so this is a really common scenario that I think many of you experienced before. Let's say right now today you're dealing with some anxiety. And oftentimes it happens Sunday night if you're going to work Monday, right? You start experiencing kind of the Sunday night blues, but maybe you start to develop this anxiety about work tomorrow. And I'm going to guess that that anxiety is coming up. Uh, most of the time in my life, it's because the next day there's something that, that I want to try to win the approval or acceptance of someone else, right? I want to prove my worthiness or be accepted to a certain person. And so now I'm feeling that anxiety about it. And since I'm feeling the anxiety about it, I want to try to numb it as best as I can. And so what, ta- what times we'll, we'll often do is we'll numb it with, with food, right? We'll maybe uh, kind of gorge ourselves with food. We'll maybe check out with television. That'll kind of numb that deep sense of shame. If we can just watch enough television and movies, we might not actually feel the pain that exists deep in our heart, but it's, it's, it's manifesting itself through anxiety and fear and health problems, but we're never dealing with it. We're just numbing it. And that's, that's shame. We feel unacceptable, and therefore we hide, we defend, or we numb it. Okay, so let's, let's differentiate now guilt, okay? Guilt, on the other hand, is the objective reality about being liable to punishment because of something we've done, okay? Shame is the subjective feeling of being worthless because of who we are, all right? So guilt's more about something we've done. Shame's more subjective about feeling worthless. As someone has said, it's the difference between making a mistake and being a mistake, so when I'm defining guilt and shame, that's what I wanna, want you to understand. It's the difference between making a mistake and that you are a mistake. And so I think we have the slide up here about guilt and shame. The feeling of guilt, okay? Uh, so, so listen, Christians, we should still at times feel guilt, okay? And that can be a gift and a grace from God when we still do come under the conviction of sin, when the Father lovingly disciplines us, we at times feel guilt. And there can be, that can be a good thing. There can be some healthy guilt or conviction over something we have done that should cause us to quickly confess of it, to repent and turn from it, and receive the forgiveness that Jesus Christ provides us. On the other hand, a feeling of shame causes us to act like Adam and Eve where we get our own fig leaves and we run and hide from God. But church in Christ, Jesus is not ashamed of who you are. I'm not saying he always approves of every single thing you do. There's going to still be some times of conviction over things we've done that we need to confess and turn from. But he is not ashamed of who you are. We are sons and daughters of God. In Christ, we do not have to run and hide from God or from one another. 
Romans 8, 15, Paul, when he's writing to the Romans, says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. We are sons and daughters of God. In Christ, we do not have to run and hide from Him or from one another. And there was a, a time of prayer that I will never forget. And it happened a couple of years ago. Uh, and I, I hesitate to share things like this because they can sometimes be misinterpreted. Uh, but, but this was so impactful in my life where God really hit me in that moment uh, with the, the realization of my, my sonship or my adoption into the family. It really became a reality to me. And the reason that I hesitate to share this is because, I mean, we talk a lot about, hey, as believers, we do want to be led by the Spirit. Uh, but then we get real uncomfortable when someone starts talking about like, hey, God told me this, God told me that, God told me this, God told me that. And so we do need to be careful. Uh, for example, there was a bad example of this back in college. I went to a Christian college, and uh, the pickup line for, at Christian college for guys that were going after girls way out of their league, uh, what they would say was like, hey, I've been praying, and I think God's telling me we need to be together. And I'd be like, really? Like, are you sure that was God telling you that? Or were there some like hormones going on in that, uh, that decision making as well, right? Like, are you sure that's what God was telling you? And so uh, I, I don't, I don't want to get into that, uh, that category of always saying, hey, God told me this, God told me that. I, I also don't want to do that because um, sometimes as pastors, we can kind of uh, even um, unknowingly uh, kind of claim or, or make it appear like we have this access to God that you do not have. And that is not true, all right? In Christ, we all have access to God in prayer. But there are times in prayer where the Spirit prompts, where the Spirit nudges me. It doesn't happen all the time, but there are times when He does. And any time that the Spirit prompts you, right, it, wisdom would tell us that, hey, this needs to line up with scriptural truth. Okay, so that's kind of the first check. Like, is this lining up with what we know about God as He's revealed to us through His Word? And it needs to be affirmed in community. Like, are my brothers and sisters, can they affirm that, yes, this is of the Lord? And so in this time of prayer, um, I had often in that season started before my Bible reading and prayer to, to say the line, uh, Speak, O Lord, your servant is listening. From, from 1 Samuel, uh, when God calls Samuel. Um, but but in that season that I was in, uh, we were about a year into the church plant, and I was really struggling with just feeling so inadequate, uh, inadequate as a husband, uh, inadequate as, as a father and as a pastor, and I really did start to just experience a lot of shame, mainly over my, my weaknesses and my inadequacies. There wasn't some big sin that needed to be turned from. It was just my, my weaknesses. I felt like I was just unworthy to be doing this. I felt like I was failing God in every aspect of my life and that he was growing more and more disappointed with me by the day. And I felt unworthy to continue into these roles. And so I was, I was struggling. And the reason I share this with you is I believe one of the reasons I'm still standing before you today 
Uh, the reason I can still joyfully proclaim the excellencies was, of Christ was that the Spirit prompted me in that moment, and I went to pray, and I went to say, Speak, O Lord, your servant is listening. But I couldn't get the word servant out. I said, Speak, O Lord, your is listening. And I was, trying, I was trying to say the word servant, so much to the, the fact that I thought maybe I was having a stroke or something like that was happening. Of course, that side of my brain starts going down that pa- pathway, like, why cannot I not say this word? And so I tried it again. Speak, O Lord, your is listening. And then I thought, okay, I'll try this one more time. I'll try it as hard as I can. And I said, speak, O Lord. And I tried to say servant. And as I said it, I said, your son is listening. And it's not wrong to pray, speak, O Lord, your servant is listening. But in that moment, God was overwhelming me with my adoption into his family. And he was bringing that reality from his word, and I was experiencing it in my life, this this overwhelming feeling and washing over of being a son. And later that day, he brought me to Galatians 4, 7. Wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Church, many of you are spiritually exhausted and weary. And it's not because you're not getting enough rest. It's not because of any of that. Church, you are spiritually exhausted and weary because you have these feelings in your heart of deep inadequacy, of unworthiness, of shame. You feel like a failure, and God's disapproval of you is growing greater and greater by the day, and you've had to use all your energy to just try to hide this or to defend it or to numb it. But listen, church, Jesus isn't ashamed of you. Someone needs to hear that today. Jesus isn't ashamed of you. He's not ashamed of who you are. And he's provided a way to heal you of your shame. And it is through the community that we have been given with the Father, Son, and Spirit and with our fellow brothers and sisters that God heals our shame and helps us enjoy life now as sons and daughters of God. Like, take your shoes, like, get comfortable. There's drinks in the fridge. There's actually, there's only communion juice, and we need that, so don't go to the fridge. The water fountain's out there. That's, that's what you guys get. Listen, I, I don't, the, the temptation about church and gathering is that we can just start to, like, play church. Christ frees us from that. We don't have to hide, defend, or numb our shame because Christ took our shame. So let's look back to the example of Jesus 
the captain of our salvation, who's going after our enemies, and he's coming after our hearts to unashamedly bring us into the family of God. Look back at Hebrews 2, verses 12 and 13. He's going to go into quoting some Old Testament passages here. Verse 12, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Verse 13, and again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Okay, now that, uh, reading that, it's a, it feels like a little broken up. It feels a little choppy, but let's try to understand this, okay? Uh, he's quoting a couple of Old Testament passages, and the first is Psalm 22. All right, so that's that first uh, quote there is from Psalm 22. Psalm 22 was written by David, but it was understood to ultimately be pointing to Jesus. And the first part of the psalm, go read it later this week, is, is ultimately fulfilled during the suffering and death of Christ. Okay, G Christ understood this to be uh, talking about him because when he's, on the Christ, uh, when he's on the cross, he yells Psalm 22 verse 1, like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All right, that's Psalm 22. That's the psalm that he's quoting here. But then we get to verse 22, and all throughout Psalm 22, we're seeing, you know, uh, uh, pictures of the crucifixion and Jesus' suffering and his shame. But then we get to verse 22, and this is now after the suffering and the agony is done. And in verse 22 in Psalm 22, he says, I will tell of, my, of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. Now, don't miss this because this is really cool, okay? Before Jesus' death and resurrection, he never called his followers brothers. Like, like he called his, his earthly siblings that, but he never called his followers brothers. He called them disciples or he called them sheep. At one point, he even calls them friends, which is pretty, pretty cool and pretty significant, but never brothers. But then after the resurrection, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary come and find him. And in Matthew 28, verse 10, and we, we would often miss this point, but after the resurrection in Matthew 28, 10, then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. Something has happened there. The death and resurrection of Jesus has, has something has happened. And Psalm 22 and Hebrews 2 would agree that now followers of Jesus are called Brothers. It appears that the captain of our salvation who suffered and died in our place has provided us a way to be adopted into the glorious family of God. And J.I. Packer, he summarizes the New Testament message in three words, okay, in his book, Knowing God. Uh, which you should all get and read, J.I. Packer's Knowing God. It's, uh, it's, it's worth the price just on the adoption in the Sons of God chapter. Uh, if you haven't read it, you should feel uh, ashamed of yourself. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. That would that'd be the opposite of what we're trying to accomplish. Don't feel shame. You're free in Christ, all right? But if you want to read a book, go read that one, all right? And he summarizes the whole New Testament in three words. He says the whole New Testament can be summarized in adoption through propitiation. Adoption through propitiation. Now, propitiation, we're going to get into next week because we'll see it at the end of Hebrews 2, but briefly it means the appeasing of divine wrath. Okay, Christ suffered and died in order to appease the rightful and just wrath of God that had to be poured out onto sin. 
But Christ did this not so that we could just start with a clean slate to go, hey, good luck with the rest of your life. He did not appease the wrath of God to just get us a get out of hell free card. He even did not appease the wrath of God just to justify us, right? Which he certainly did. We've been declared right. There's been a legal standing, a legal verdict that we are not guilty. He did do that, but he didn't just appease the wrath of God for that. He appeased the wrath of God so that we might be adopted into the family of God so that he could bring many sons and daughters unashamedly into glory. And now here's this beautiful psalm, Psalm 22, pointing to the crucifixion. And after the propitiation is done, now Jesus calls his people brothers and sisters. And we see in Hebrews 2, right, pointing that Jesus is now in the middle of the congregation leading joyful singing songs of praise. Jesus is singing, which is now one of the weapons of our spiritual warfare utilized by the captain of our salvation, joyful singing. And this, this spring, all right, this is what I'm thinking we probably need to do as, as a church. We need to have a short topical sermon series understanding how our worship is war. Okay, we need to recapture a vision for how to biblically uh, worship with a, more, a wartime mentality for our congregational sing, singing. Because more is happening as we worship and proclaim Christ's glory through song and through reading and through preaching. More is happening in the heavenly and earthly realms than we can even get our minds around. And so I think we need to recapture this so that we can really, with our whole hearts, worship God in spirit and truth. But allow me to make a brief application point here, okay? In regards to how our hearts are healed of shame. Because we've been saying our hearts are healed of shame through enjoying community with Christ and through his people and with his people. And one of the ways we can commune with Christ and his people is through making a joyful noise to the Lord. Church, the captain of your salvation has set you an example. Okay, and so for all the guys, and I, this was me at one point in my life, who think that singing is kind of more of a feminine thing, right? All right, listen, if Jesus sings, it is manly to sing. Amen. If the captain of your salvation sings, we, we sing, okay? And if you are weary from hiding and defending or numbing your shame, a real practical thing to do is to sing praises to the Lord. And you watch what that does to your heart. I can't always explain what happens, but something happens in your heart when you come in weary and tired and heavy laden and, and you're tired of hiding and you're feeling shame and you then start singing praises to God. Something happens in your heart. All right, look back at Hebrews. Because not only does he quote Psalm 22, but he quotes Isaiah 8. And I'm going to quickly summarize Isaiah 8 for you, okay? In Isaiah 8, Isaiah the prophet has been told that the Assyrians are going to come and invade and just devastate the nation, all right? Devastation is coming. This is what he's been told in Isaiah 8. And Isaiah responds with, hey, even though the Lord is bringing this devastation upon us, even though he is seemingly hiding his face from us, I will trust in him. Right? This is where he's quoted. I will put my trust in him. 
And what we see from Hebrews is that Jesus ultimately fulfilled this when he was here on earth and he was on the cross and God hid his face from him. Yet even in that moment, Jesus trusted the will of the Father and it was into his hands that he committed his spirit. I will put my trust in him even when I've been told devastation is coming. Will we trust the will of the Father? Will we trust the will of the Father in the face of devastating shame in our hearts or in the face of devastating circumstances in our world? Will we trust God? And then Isaiah, uh, it goes on to quote Isaiah 8 again, talking about his children. And what we know about Isaiah in Isaiah 8 is that he has two children uh, that he brings up and God tells him what to name them, okay? Uh, So for those of you that, you know, struggled picking a name, in this situation, God's like, this is what they're named, okay? One was named Maher Shalel Hashbaz, which you might have missed that one in the baby name book, but it is still an option for you. Uh, And that name, it literally means the spoil speeds the prey hastes, which that's confusing to me. It essentially is saying the oppressors will soon be removed. Okay, the oppressors will soon be removed. That's what God tells him to name one of his sons. The other then was given a name a bit shorter, named Shear Jashub, which literally meant a remnant shall return. Or, or essentially, God's people will be preserved. Okay, so think back to Isaiah first, Isaiah 8. In the context of Isaiah 8, here we have Isaiah, whose name means Yahweh is salvation, and he's here, here with his children, one named oppressors will soon be removed and God's people will be preserved. And the author of Hebrews now ties this back to Jesus Christ, who trusted in the will of the Father may, and made a way for the oppression of God's people to cease and ensured that a people would be preserved by being adopted into the family of God. And so when we see Isaiah, when we see Jesus standing in the congregation, singing praises, trusting God in the face of devastation, we see and are reminded that oppression will soon cease and God's people will be preserved. Think about the original recipients of Hebrews who are, who are hearing this for the first time. They, they had faced persecution, and they're going to face even more persecution. And the author is writing this to them to comfort them, to show them that Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 22, that he is the fulfillment of Isaiah 8, and that he endured suffering just like them and even far worse than them so that now they could take comfort in the fact that they can trust in the will of the Father that oppressors will soon be removed and God's people will be preserved because Jesus now calls them brothers. They're in the family. And the older brother isn't going to let something happen to the other ones. So take comfort, church. All you who are weary from hiding your shame, trust in your Savior. Your oppressors will soon cease. God's people will be preserved. You've been adopted into a glorious family. 
And it is this good news of adoption and the glorious gift of community with Christ and the community with one another that we have that can free us from hiding or defending or numbing our shame. And instead, it can empower us to bring our shame out into the light in our communion with Christ, in the community that we have with people so that it might be healed. And God's word gives us this promise in Romans 10, verse 11. It says, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. And so I'll invite the the worship team back up here. Because church, now we get the opportunity to praise his name in the community of of our brothers and sisters. We want to praise the name of the one who took our shame so that we might be unashamedly welcomed into the glorious family of God. In Christ, this is is family. This is family. And Jesus is not ashamed of you. Let's pray.